Why don't you stand up and uh, we'll read the Word of God. I'm not going to actually go into chapter 47. I was going to do both chapters. I was going to try to be an overachiever. But uh, one of the statements I was looking for, I forgot it was in chapter 46, that I wanted to kind of springboard off of and give you guys some things to think about uh, in regard to God's foreknowledge and predetermination in the context of redemption. It's, it's uh, simple theology. But it's, it's good to talk about it. It's all over the scriptures, and uh, people wrestle with it. Uh, I still wrestle with it. I've read books about it from uh, the top thinkers in evangelical theology, and uh, they don't agree, so they're still thinking about it. And, uh, but it's, it's a good thing. And uh, looking at the scriptures, recognizing their authority, that what they say, even though we can't always work it out, it's true. And uh, as one theologian said, uh, it's not against reason, it's just beyond it, at least human reason. So, yeah. so let's read the text, and then we'll, we'll, I will exposit the text, and then we'll address this issue. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded and a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we should be alike. That they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Father, what you have determined will come to pass. Your foreknowledge is not passive. It orchestrates, it, it's planned out, it's, it's determined. And Lord, we fit into that somehow. And um, for some people, it's bothersome. For me, it's comforting. And I pray that as we get into this tonight, that others would be reassured by it. They would be more confident in the God who says that I carry you, even to your old age. So Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray that you would exalt it in our hearing tonight, as always. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, back up with me, if you would. Go ahead and be seated. 
to verse 1. We're still in the context of this major section of Isaiah, where Isaiah is, uh, because of Israel's sin, he's anticipating the Babylonian invasion and the discipline of Israel by taking them into exile, but not just uh, leaving them in their, in their minds in exile, but also speaking of future deliverance and God's sovereign hand in, in not just delivering them, but calling out a king by name and giving him the, the, the nation states around Babylon and Babylon itself, and then being the agent by which he frees the Jews. And then as we talked about, he uses the subsequent kings to actually uh, fund the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, the foundation of the temple, the temple itself, and the whole city. Okay? And um, so here we are, uh, and God, through this whole process, he's been trying to demonstrate to his wayward people that he alone is God, that idols are a lie, they're a waste, and they need to return to him. He loves them. He has called them by name. Um, a tragic but beautiful story about God and his, his goodness. So he begins, he, he says, Bel, it's a god, um, so-called, bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols, there's the, the pagans, were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Now, prior to now in the book of Isaiah, Bel, who's also known as Marduk, how many, you're probably more familiar with the name Marduk. Uh, he hasn't been mentioned by Isaiah. Uh, Nebo has. He's been mentioned once in Isaiah 15, but only in relation to uh, the country of Moab. And, and the context of this prophecy is the judgment of Babylon and her most revered deities. And uh, the judgment of both, as we mentioned last week, both happened in the same night. Remember Cyrus uh, and his men, they diverted the Euphrates River, came under the city when Belshazzar and his armies were partying, and uh, they were so confident that nobody could breach the walls of Babylon that they took their ease and they were conquered without, basically without violence, except they did slay uh, Belshazzar. But Belshazzar, um, the king, he's mentioned in Daniel 5, he was named after the god Bel, Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, and, of course, he's the king that was residing there the night it was conquered. So both the king of Babylon and the great gods of Babylon fell together. Now, the ancient peoples always associated those things together. When a city would fall to an enemy, uh, it was considered a judgment both upon the king and the god who supposedly uh, protected the king. Okay? So it's, it's troubling for the whole nation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of, uh, was the king of Babylon that conquered Jerusalem uh, and took the Jews captive. He was named after Nebo. Nebo yeah. So Isaiah says that the gods of Babylon will bow down. Now these passages predict, at least in part, uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah 45 verse 24, which states that every knee will bow and every tongue confess before Yahweh. So here in chapter 46 we see even the idols bowing down, as it were, demonstrating their fear of the one true God okay, in the judgment of Babylon. Now, it is interesting that in the New Testament, Paul, you know, he says an idol itself is nothing, but 
there essentially is a demon behind the idol. And uh, so it's not the idol of gold or silver or wood that is going to bow down, but it's the demon behind the idol. Every, all of the principalities, powers, visible, invisible, they will all kneel before Christ and declare his lordship for the glory of God. And I am so excited because that is the beginning of eternity when all wickedness will be gone. Anyway, um, it says that, Isaiah also says that the idols have themselves become a burden to the worshipers. Not even their beasts of burden can support them. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Grodin, he's, uh, he's passed, passed in, I think, 2011, great biblical scholar. He, he makes this statement about this and says that these idols have become a liability both to man and beast, <laughs> both physically and spiritually. Uh, they have to bear them up. As Isaiah says, they have to carry them. But in the end, there's no profit. Both man and beast are at a loss uh, because of these idols. So God says, he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Do you see the difference he's creating between paganism and the worship of the one true God? Do you see it in the text? Similar language, same, many of the same Hebrew words. So pagans, they fashion their gods, they bear them up, they carry them about, they put them in their place, but their idols are unable to save. But the God of the Bible, he fashions his people. He bears them up. He puts them in their place. He saves them from their troubles, even to their old age. It's great. Idolatry is oppressive, where the worship of Yahweh is redemptive. The pagan is essentially a slave to his idol, but the people of God are served by their God, and therefore they serve him willingly and joyfully. He's not a liability to the worshiper. He's a blessing. So God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? What will you compare to the incomparable? What would you liken to him who is truly unique? Now, so far in the prophecy, he is just, in many ways, just the opposite of the pagan deities. And the big one, of course, is that uh, he's alive and he gives life to all. He says, they, that's the pagan, lavish gold out of the bag. That is, they dig and they just pull gold out. They weigh silver on the scales and they hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. So the, the, the contrast is still building. The pagan idols are made, but God is the uncreated creator. He's not made. Pagans prostrate themselves and worship what is not living, but those in the covenant of Yahweh worship the living God. He says, they bear it on their shoulder, carry it, set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. How sad that a pagan has to carry his God about, prop him up, and then once he gets there, he cannot move because it's required that the, the worshiper move him. Yahweh, he cannot be reduced to such a state as to need the worshiper. He does not need the worshiper, someone to carry him about, someone to prop him up. The creator is in need of nothing, especially us. Idols cannot save those who cry out to them because they're essentially nothing, as Paul says. 
But Yahweh, the living God, is both able to answer when they cry and able to save. So God is not to be compared to what is lifeless, what is worthless. And then part of the judgment in all of this is that Israel, at the time of Isaiah, basically until the captivity, they had been going into idolatry, a thing that Isaiah earlier called the lie. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 1. He says, exchanging the truth of God for the lie. So God says, remember this and show yourself men. It's still acceptable to say that, to be a man. Recall to mind, oh, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. So look back on all of your history and remember this, recall this. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. None like me. Here, he, here is his proof. Remember, this was the test that God had thrown out uh, about five chapters ago, the test of deity. This is what I do, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Not some of it. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So bringing this man from the far east is Cyrus still. That's in the context, okay? So God is saying, remember this, think back. And I would say, think back from the Exodus forward, okay? I'm proving my deity to you, declaring the end of all things. I've declared it from the beginning of all things, declaring from ancient times things yet to come. And then he says, bringing to pass, I'm bringing it to pass, whatever I have spoken. So the true test of deity is to know all things in advance and have the ability to perform his will in the world, unfettered, freely, to freely perform his will how he pleases. So here it is. Yahweh doesn't simply possess all knowledge, declaring in advance what will unravel in the end. He is the one that actually brings to pass what he has declared. He will do everything, just as the text says, as he's purposed it. Now, we've mentioned before, God's knowledge is not passive. He doesn't simply know what will happen. He actually brings it to pass. He orchestrates his desired outcome. As I said, some people, this bothers them. Other people are comforted by it. If man is in full control in the, in the sinful, insane state that he's in, that would be troubling. But to have an all-loving, all-powerful God be orchestrating things to his intended end, that brings a great deal of comfort to me. So in the context, he doesn't simply know that Cyrus will rise to power. He's not saying, I'm... I'm looking through the corridors of time and I see this dude rising to power among the Persians. No, no, no. He brings Cyrus to power. He doesn't simply know that Cyrus will free the Jews. He brings Cyrus to release the Jews. That's what he's been declaring from chapter 44 until now. He says, listen to me, you stubborn hearted. Of course, he's not just speaking to ancient Israel. He says... You who are far from righteousness, I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, 
and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So speaking to you know, rebellious, unbelieving Israel through the prophet Isaiah, God declares that he will keep his covenant promise to Israel. Okay? Though they are currently rebellious, he will bring them to righteousness. He says, I'm doing this. This is what a good father does. Though they will go into captivity, he says he will deliver them because a good father disciplines his children. Amen? BJ? Okay, just checking. He will save and he will establish salvation in Zion and he'll do this for Israel, he says, his glory. Now, this is all great news. It's great news. But how does God do some of these things? How can he guarantee these kinds of results when people are involved? Okay, so we discussed in the past how God's foreknowledge is not simply passive, but also determinative. But we haven't discussed a whole lot of this regarding its relationship to redemption. Okay, I want to talk about it. I've wanted to talk about it, but I've been waiting for the right time. And I'm sure it'll generate plenty of discussion. So it's one thing to know all things in advance, but it's another thing to bring them to pass when it, when it comes to human decision and action. So the question arises, our decisions and our actions, are they free and meaningful for us, or is God the ultimate decision maker and actor? Now, in some audiences, I would get here, here. In other audiences, I'd get no way. And then some, it's like, I have no idea. But most people are on one side or the other side, okay? As I said, this is, this is all very elementary, Watson. So don't get stressed out about it, okay? This is basic 101 theology. Yeah, God's knowledge is so interesting to me because it's infallible. It's infallible. He cannot error in his knowledge. We're all fine with that, okay? He knows everything perfectly, precisely, flawlessly. He knows what will happen, when it will happen, how it will happen, and every consequence that follows. He even knows what would happen if a different course of action were taken. We talked about middle knowledge, okay? And because God knows infallibly all that will actually happen, everything must happen that way. Otherwise, he does not possess infallible foreknowledge. But he does. Scripture says he does, and he's proven it. And it's because of his infallible foreknowledge that we must say that all things are predetermined. Are you ready? Even our salvation and choices. Is that comforting to you or does that rub you raw? But even if our salvation and choices are predetermined, does it mean that they are coerced? Are they coerced? Does God's infallible foreknowledge preclude, exclude free will or does it include it? Now, there are some serious challenges that arise no matter which side you take, okay? And on either side, depending on the extent to which you know, you push your position, scripture then can be violated, okay? If every decision and action is predetermined, in one sense, God is to blame for every evil choice and all evil actions of men. This would fit into an extreme version of what is called unilateral divine determinism. Say that really fast. Unilateral divine determinism. This is where God determines and acts independently for himself through the agency of man. Man is not free to act or choose for himself 
which makes God the ultimate actor. Have you ever, ever heard God as the ultimate cause of all things? And I believe all rational people go, define all. Because I said something yesterday that was bad. I thought something yesterday that was evil. Do you know what I'm saying? Was that God? That creates a problem for me. How about you? Yeah. So in extreme forms of this, man is a limberjack. He's a puppet. He's an automaton. This extreme version of unilateral divine determinism violates the nature of God. Okay? He is morally holy. In him there is no sin, and indeed he cannot even sin. Okay? Not even through the agency of another. Okay? Speaking in a moral sense, John the Apostle says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is morally pure. 1 John 1.5. Titus 1.5, Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible. His nature, he is not free to lie, if we might say, okay? Because his nature, it's just not within him to do that. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the Lord is upright he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 92, verse 15. The Lord is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk 1, 3. Uh, now certainly he sees evil, but he cannot approve of it. Okay? So if God were the ultimate cause of man's evil actions and choices, he is ultimately to blame. But because of his nature, this is just absolutely impossible. It's impossible. In lesser extreme versions of this, which more people are comfortable with, man is only free to sin. He's not free in regard to things pertaining to salvation, meaning he lacks the ability because of his sinful depravity to even respond to the gospel. Okay? So he must be born again before he even believes or repents. Now I have problems with that because the chronology is uh, not the chronology provided in the Bible. This gets God off the hook for sin, but it fails to explain the unilateral nature of God's determination. See, he either determines all things by way of his foreknowledge, or he determines nothing. There's, there's, just, there's no way around that. He either determines through his foreknowledge everything or nothing. Okay? So, so if God has infallible foreknowledge, everything is predetermined. What he knows perfectly must come to pass exactly as he knows it. Also, this position doesn't explain how God's omniscience and his predetermination function. It's more of an issue of what we would call the extent of our depravity and how it affects us. It's just a totally different subject than the issue of his foreknowledge. It's an issue, it's a discussion about us rather than him. You get it? See, we're talking about God's foreknowledge and his predetermination. We're not talking about my inability or ability to do anything. Okay, so it gets him off the hook for sin, but it's still not answering the question. I think the question, that statement is brought up to distract from the question. What are the implications of his omniscience in regard to our actions and choices? Are we free? Are we free in light of his predetermining foreknowledge or are we not? Is it one or the other? Is it both and? We'll come back to that. So that's the one side of the spectrum. What's the other? Okay. That's the position that God doesn't determine human choice and action but man is entirely free in this regard. Now, the problem with this position 
is that it ultimately de- denies God's infallible foreknowledge. He doesn't, they say, fully know, and therefore his knowledge is not determinative. I got problems with that, okay? Some examples. Um, Abraham, he was called of God, and it was completely unilateral. It was determined apart from Abraham. In Genesis 12, God didn't ask Abraham if he wanted to leave his family and his country. He didn't get Abraham's permission to make a great nation out of him. He didn't get his permission to bless him and make his name great. Did he? No, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I think five times. Also, Peter says that the believer is God's elect according to the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1, 2. We had some people one time, they were afraid to come to Calvary Chapel because Pastor Ben believes in predestination. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's all over the scriptures, okay? So God's election, do we agree that that's his determination? When you choose or elect something, is that your choice, your determination? It certainly is, okay? And here, Peter ties it to his foreknowledge, to God's foreknowledge. Again, James said, known to God from all eternity are all his works. Acts 15, 18. You know, one of his greatest works is your salvation and mine, known to him from all eternity. Does that comfort you? That you've been in the grip of his hand from all eternity? Also, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans 8, 29 through 30. In this passage, you have foreknowledge and predetermination in the same breath. Get rid of that. Do you believe in predestination? I hope so, because Paul was quite convinced of it. Okay? They're in the same breath. One more. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Tell you what, I'm all into God's good pleasure, especially when it comes to my predestination. Okay? So the question now is, that's according to his good will the predestination of his elect. But was it contrary to our will? We'll come back to that. So the argument on this other end of the spectrum, it also violates the scriptures because God does have infallible foreknowledge and his foreknowledge is predetermining. You just, you can't avoid it. But when these things are stated or framed according to various camps of theology, you typically have one thing to the exclusion of the other, okay? You have God's predetermining foreknowledge to the exclusion of free will, or you have free will to the exclusion of God's foreknowing predetermination. Others would pit the language or state the language this way. They pit God's sovereignty against free will or vice versa. God is completely sovereign, so there's no free will. And others would say strongly, well, man has free will, therefore God isn't quite that sovereign. And one of my favorite theologians says, so you're saying that God is so sovereign that he can't give man free will. It's crazy. Well, I'm, I'm no genius, okay? But I'm not convinced either holds fidelity 
to the scriptures completely or to the nature of God. I think there's, there's pitfalls in all of them. It's the scriptures which are themselves infallible. Can we agree on, on that? Okay. They explicitly teach and they imply in many passages that man has free will and that he's, that he's responsible to choose for himself. Now, some of the problems lie in how do we actually define free will? Did you know there's different definitions for free will? I'm not going to bore you with all of them, okay? For example, some have said that free will is doing what we want. One of who, one, a man who's considered one of America's greatest Christian philosophers believed this. But see, I do things all the time that I don't want to do, and yet I do them freely. I eat broccoli. No one coerces me to do it. I just eat it because I know it's good for me. At least that's what they tell me, okay? My understanding of free will is that God has given us the ability to choose otherwise. That's my understanding of free will. There's other philosophical views of free will out there, some of them completely loony, but that's mine. It seems to correspond best with scripture and reality to me, okay? As I said, we we see both explicit passages on free will and implicit, and as any good Bible teacher does, he defends his own point, so I'm going to do that now, okay? Here are some explicit passages. You're familiar with all of them, I'm sure. Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." So Joshua says, choose for yourself. If you hold to unilateral divine determinism, no one can actually choose for themselves because God has chosen for you. Now in this context, if some of them were to choose the gods of the Amorites, that would be God choosing for them to do something evil. Okay, I got, I got beef with that. Okay, And if that position is true though, this statement of Joshua's is meaningless because no one is actually able to do what Joshua says, which is silly. But if freedom is having the ability to choose otherwise, it corresponds perfectly because Joshua says that you can do either or, one or the other. You decide for yourself. They can choose to follow Yahweh or they can choose to do otherwise. You see it in the text? Again, again, Jesus, and I think his words are fairly authoritative. Uh, That's sarcasm, by the way. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings, but you were not willing. Oh, so Jesus says, I wanted, that's the divine will, but you were unwilling. The divine will was to gather the people of Jerusalem to himself, but they were unwilling. That is, they chose otherwise. Now, those are two pretty explicit examples. Let me give you some implicit. John, in speaking about Jesus, he says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, to receive implies an active 
willful role on, by the recipient, doesn't it? Absolutely. Jesus' own did not willfully receive, but some did willfully receive. Some chose to receive him by faith, but his own chose otherwise. They refused to receive him. The parable he gives is of the Pharisees saying to him, to Jesus, we will not have this man to rule. He came to rule, and they said, we will not have him. They chose otherwise. Again, Paul says, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, but not everyone gets saved, clearly. So what could account for that? It's simple. They desired something other than what God desired, and so they chose otherwise. I think it's pretty simple in the text. Okay? So in the scriptures, God chooses us before time, and apparently we choose him in time. By his infallible foreknowledge, he predetermines who will be saved, because what he foreknows must come to pass. And as the scriptures reveal, this is not contrary to our will, but it's in accord with it. We are not coerced, but we have the ability to choose and to do otherwise. There's no conflict, not in the scriptures, between God's predetermining foreknowledge and our freedom. The only conflict is in our inability to harmonize them or our refusal to accept it. That's my position on that. I think if we take all scripture into account we freely choose what he has predetermined. So we can affirm what God said in Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I'm so thankful that my election was within his pleasure. Indeed, I've spoken it, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I've chosen, I've called, I've elected. I've purposed it. I will also do it. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. If you have questions or comments uh, afterwards, I would love to chat with you. When we get to Ephesians chapter 1, one of these centuries, this whole door will be kicked wide open. (laughs) So, yeah. Father, I can't say that in my puny little brain that I fully understand how your predetermination works with my ability to choose otherwise. But I find both in your word, and so I'm not afraid to say it. I'm not afraid to believe it. I got lots of friends that disagree with me. Um, But Lord, whatever the case, if I am within the framework of your good pleasure, I am well pleased. I'm thankful that I'm not responsible for my own salvation. I'm thankful that I can't keep myself as Jude says, you are the one that keeps us from stumbling. Father, I'm thankful that I'm, I can't possibly present myself faultless before your throne, but Jesus will do that through his work of sanctifying me. So Lord, I'm grateful for your election. I'm grateful for the fact that you've granted me repentance and the ability to trust you. I guess all that to say, Father, I'm so comfortable knowing that You're good, you're sovereign, and uh, I'm in your son's hand, and I'm in your hand. And Lord, as the world uh, 
is coming to part of the seams. I cannot be moved because the sovereign God holds me. So Lord, thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.